Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. Silence and welcome to the most beautiful city in the world, Houston, Texas. And you're right here in my home and overlooking uh, where I work, Texas Medical Center, uh, just a few blocks away, looking outside of residence here. And uh, looks like the Astros are tied up in game six of the AL- ALCS uh, series tonight. So you can put that on pause and and watch tonight because we have an unbelievable program uh, that we want to just share with you. And probably, I think it's the first time we were talking just a few seconds before we went live. This is the first time we've ever welcomed someone from uh, the country of a beautiful country. I'd love to visit there, and hopefully I can one day, Australia. So we're going to be uh, bringing her in here very shortly. Um, if you want to get involved in the program tonight, a couple of things you want to do and can do. You can either uh, call 888-627-6008. That will patch you right to the BBS radio station. And TJ will patch you right on through to us. And we'll let you say and a- ask the question you want to or comment. Uh, and we'll let you share it that way. Or you can get on uh, Shattered by the Darkness Facebook page. It looks like it is up and running. Yes, it is. Uh, my son, Curtis, in Seattle, Washington, is running. Uh, right now, so feel free to do that. Uh, or you can uh, text me on my phone, 832-396-6525. And at our first commercial break, I will check all my texts to see if there's any comments or questions that way. Uh, I want to apologize for my voice tonight. I have had COVID all week long, and it's been a long week of me sitting in that chair right there, uh, just trying to get through uh, the fevers and the coughing and and the, the restlessness, and it was terrible. This bout of COVID was the worst that I've ever experienced. I think I've had this two or three times uh, now, but this one isn't a fun one. They, none of them were fun, but um, this one was hard. And uh, so I apologize, my voice isn't all here tonight, but we're going to let our guests do most of the talking. What I always like to do is before we bring the guest in, I always just like to share with you a few things. Got a lot of stuff to share tonight, but I'm only going to keep it short because this story is so powerful tonight and so inspirational that I want to make sure we don't cut this short whatsoever. But just a couple of things that I've learned this week is (laughs) life's not easy. You might as well brace yourself. You might as well tighten the seatbelts of life tighter 
uh, just when you think that last hill of the roller coaster uh, is done and you're ready to go into smooth sailing for a while, uh, another hill and then another drop uh, in that roller coaster of life. I, I tell you, there's going to be days that you don't know what to even do. There's going to be times that you don't even understand how to be able to make it another day. Our guest tonight is going to have some insight on that. What is it like to be hit again and again and again? And when you want to curl up in a ball and lie on the floor and cry, and you know you can't, it's not an option for you. How do you get by? A lot of times in life, we fail at handling that. A lot mm -hmm. of times we make the wrong choices. Uh, the faster that we accept that we're not perfect, the better off we are going to move into a world that we can understand and be able to cope with uh, a little better. Right now in life, you're not going to have all the answers. I don't think we ever will. I don't think there's ever going to be a point in life and at my age, and I'm 60 years old, that I'm going to say, hey, I'm wise in my senior years, and I'm going to know how to handle it. No. No, doesn't work that way. Thanks for playing. It just doesn't work that way. Right now, there's still a lot of stuff that you don't know. And just when you think you have the world by the tail and everything's going your way, the phone rings, a letter comes, the boss asks you to come to the office, whatever. And how do you handle that makes you who you are. Decides on what life's going to be like for the duration. And in reality, I, I want to be really, really serious here. Uh, in reality, we're not promised one more day. Tomorrow isn't promised to us. So just when we think, oh, I'll do that next week, I'll do that next year, or I'll go and enjoy that vacation or be with my family more uh, in the coming months. Reality is, for everyone, uh, there may not be a tomorrow. And I think the reality of the story tonight shares that with us even more powerful than what my words could even possibly be uh, this evening. Sometimes we realize your own strength and you don't realize just how strong you are until you come face to face with your greatest weakness in life. Sometimes we don't know how strong we are until we have no other choice but to either, either be strong or throw in the cards and fold. And that's not an option. So I think, in a nutshell, and I want to get to the guests real quick, I think stop being afraid of what could go wrong in your life and start being excited about what could go right. And lean into the positives Lean in, and I want you to all have a, a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen tonight because I want you to write this book's title down. I want you to buy it. I want you to use it. I want you to dog tell, tell the ears, uh, circle it, and highlight it of things that you're going to be able to apply from this 
person's life from her pain. And when you do that, what we are doing is we are saying thank you for writing the words, for being a champion, for hanging in there, being an inspiration, and not throwing it all away, but for staying strong and making us be stronger. There's days that we only cross paths. Tonight, I may only be crossing our guest path tonight for the next 45 minutes. May never speak to her again. But in that 45 minutes time, we're going to learn from each other. We're going to join hands and we're going to say, how can we be stronger with what you know and what I know? And how can we tell more people about it? You will not want to miss this program tonight. You may want to get on your phones right now and text. Hey, Greg has somebody on tonight that you're going to want to hear. Denny Meek um, is all the way from Australia. She has written a book called Still Standing. And I can't imagine the pain, the hurt, the agony that she has gone through. Not once, not twice, but three times. I'll let her tell the story. I want to welcome to the program tonight, all the way from Australia, Denny Meek. Denny, can you hear me this evening? I can. Hey, there you are. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Thank you for that very gripping intro. <laughs> well, I tell you, um, the only thing that gets me by and I want to hear your side of this from your perspective. Some days from what has happened in my life is to be able to help one more person. Does that have any satisfaction, strength, um, uplifting factors for you? And could that be the reason you wrote the book? What do you think? The first reason I wrote the book, Still Standing, uh, was to help other people who were going through the same experiences to know that they were not alone because that isolation was one of the hardest parts for me. And I was journaling a lot at the time, but this thought came to me and I thought I could put this to use. Um, there are fine details that you sometimes pick up that help you to realise that that person really understands what you're going through. And that was the initial reason I had. And then the next reason I saw as I wrote that it would be helpful to anybody because I was choosing anecdotes to share that were human, not just for people who are going through the specific experiences that I was enduring, but for anybody, any human. And I wanted to encourage people to look inside themselves and pull out those strengths in themselves and know that they could. If she's done it, I can do this, you know. You know, yeah. Denny, can you can you set the, the background of the story up before you go into it? What was life like um, being married, having a child or two? And I want you to kind of explain that. How was things before it just went bad? Um. I had high expectations for my life, Greg. I 
did a degree in psychology after I left school and I had the world at my feet and I looked forward to maybe more study or getting married and having children, which was what I did. I did not anticipate the journey that unfolded. I don't think anybody could. Um, You know, that's where I started. I had high expectations and high hopes for my life to have a lovely life, you know. Yeah. I don't think anybody could anticipate the things that went on to unfold. Yeah, and then it seems like can you handle and endure any more? And then another, I I don't think losing a child is something that I could ever do. Yeah. Uh, my mom lost my, my brother. It changed her life forever. She was forever changed, never accepted it. Um, I can't imagine losing three. Let me inside of your world and please tell our audience uh, as much of this story as you want to um, to share with us tonight. I, the floor is yours. Okay. I will start with uh, the birth of my second son. My second son was gorgeous. <laughs> he had long, dark, curly hair. <laughs> and uh, he was eight days old when we were transferred by ambulance to the big city hospital about two hours away. And after about 16 hours of testing, they told us he had been born with a heart abnormality, a serious one, one in 20,000, and that he would need urgent open-heart surgery by the end of that week. The surgery carried a 30% risk that he would not pull through surgery, uh, but without it, he would most certainly die. For us, that was not a choice. Of course, we went ahead with the surgery. And he made it through that. Um, There was a little blip in post-op, but we helped him climb a big mountain of medical milestones to his recovery. And at one month old, we were able to take him home off all uh, monitors, drips, tubes, medication, established back onto breastfeeding, just like a normal baby. And he had a lovely prognosis for a healthy, normal life. So we had a great time at home with him. Um, It was a very happy short period we had. What began to happen was not anticipated by the specialists. He started to get sick at home. But eventually, after a few weeks, I had to take him back to Brisbane and they were trying to find the problem. Sometimes they don't find it. And in the middle of one night, I was called to intensive care where he had been taken. It was about 2.30 in the morning and I charged into the room and there were a lot of staff standing around the bed. The paediatric registrar was pounding up and down on Joseph's chest and it was CPR in progress. They did not understand at that time what was going on uh, in that moment, but he did not pull through. I watched him die and... It's an incredibly surreal moment when death first comes into your life like that. I was 25, Joseph was two months, and I had not come face-to-face with death like that before. It's a very surreal moment. It's burnt into my memory. So 
the grief that followed uh, was probably not like the textbooks. <laughs> I wouldn't have expected what I was experiencing. It's very, very different. Um, 70% of couples who lose a child separate yeah. because mm, it's a very it's a very big challenge on a marriage. And ours was no different. My husband and I separated for four months. His grief was coming out as anger. Mine was coming out as irritation. It was just very hard to be together. We wanted to. We loved each other. But uh, there's, it demands so much grief for a child. And uh, after four months, we we got, got back together, reunited on our, our first son's second birthday. And I became pregnant with our third child, same day. <laughs> so um, I need to say that domestic violence had been a factor in our marriage. It didn't happen very often. Um, but it even, was even before the death, did he? Yes. Okay, yes. so it, it had been part of the, the, the relationship. It had. Okay. It, it was not very often, and I was not confused that my husband loved me. I knew that he did, and yeah. I loved him very dearly and wanted, wanted it to work and held hope. Uh, anyway... Yeah, so domestic violence was always hovering. It was part of the dynamic. If it's there, it's going to be there. <laughs> and uh, eventually we spent eight years together, but eventually we separated for good because of that. So I went on to be a single mum. I had a subsequent relationship with another partner and another child. So by now I had had four children. That second relationship was worse as far as the violence goes. Add domestic, uh, add uh, verbal abuse, which is insidious. Physical, you can see bruises. You know, you might have to have a tooth repaired. All sorts of shocking things. You might have a concussion. But verbal abuse is insidious, and you don't see the effects that it's having on you. I live with those effects to this day. Um, so, you know, I have advice for women. I know that it's hard and I know that there are situations that are incredibly challenging and not straightforward and not don't fit a simple formula. But it's a it's a pandemic, you know, violence. The DV rate in Australia has increased since COVID. It's now one in three women in Australia who experience it. Wow. And I think your rates are similar over there. So, um, yeah, but it seems that was a that was a foundation for a lot of our trouble because it meant that when I had to become a single mother, I had to decide that my children weren't going to live with their dad, and that impacts a child. Uh, it was not an easy decision to make. So the subsequent relationship that I was in lasted three years and then I left and did a good long stretch of single parenting. Uh, I had three children. When my daughter was a very, very bright, bright student and a lovely, bubbly, friendly person, when she was nine, 
she started to display behaviours that really rattled me. Um, it was more a gut feeling rather than study, but uh, I just I felt I knew what I was looking at. Um, these behaviours did not manifest into anything that anyone else could recognise for about another three years. So uh, I could not get her seen by a professional until any there was anything to interact with. Uh, eventually, by the time she was 12, it was obvious that she was being devoured from the inside by anorexia nervosa. I got her to a psychologist, um, a dietitian, and a GP when she could acknowledge that she needed the help. Um, it wasn't great help. Uh, the psychologist said, you, you have an eating disorder, but it's not anorexia. So that caused all sorts of trouble. Anyway, within another six months, she had to be hospitalised. Her team at the hospital had never seen such um, such a level of illness with anorexia. They'd never seen anyone so sick with it. There's a whole host, uh, there's a whole page in the book still standing about uh, the symptoms that she had, you know, Heart, heart rate right down, breathing rate right down, bloods, hair. She actually had a pericardial effusion around her heart, which is two centimetres of fluid. And she was very unwell. She was on bed rest for eight days while she was fed with a nasogastric tube. And then um, at some stage they transferred her to a psychiatric ward for adolescence where she had to stay for four and a half months. She didn't like that place. It had um, it was a lot like a juvenile detention centre. I had to ask permission to see her. I had to press the buzzers at two very heavily locked doors and when we would talk, she and I by ourselves in the compound, <laughs> it was like a compound, there were great big rolls of silver razor wire all around the perimeter. So I think the effect on the psyche was that they felt like prisoners. I don't have a better solution and I don't mean to criticise, I really don't, but I just know that our experience of it was difficult. Um, so my daughter came out of hospital after about five and a half months and she was sicker than before because they had addressed the physical symptoms and not the mental illness itself. Anorexia is notoriously difficult to treat. It has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And it's incredibly complex. It's different for each sufferer. So she came home and for the three months after her admission, she took off half the weight that she had put, they had refed her with in that five months in hospital. And she was sicker mentally. So she had to have a readmission. Uh, she was in for another five weeks. She was refed. And by then she learned how to keep her body just under the minimum body mass index for her age. She was 13. She still she still stayed very thin. She, when you look at her, you, you think something's going on. Her The next year, without a hospitalisation, she came ducks of her year, her third year in high school here. She's incredibly smart and vibrant and very, very likeable and lovable. A month after she came ducks, her elder brother, my my first son, Simon, took his own life. 
He was 18. Did I see it coming? Not really. Um, he and I had conversations about everything. We talked, no, nowhere was taboo for he and I. Maybe sex because he was a teenage boy and you don't talk about that too much. <laughs> but, you know, everything else, he took my mind places. He was a very deep soul and very sensitive. And it was hard in this world for him without a dad. That was hard. So he took blows very personally. There were a few things coming up to the time. You tend to look back through the suicide lens at the life and maybe, um, you know, attach significance where there might not have been any in order to try to understand why. But uh, so that was my son's passing at 18 years and five months. So the household, I don't know how I kept going after that. I needed to grieve and my daughter, it precipitated a huge change in her. She had been very close to her big brother. She started to rebel, <laughs> which she needed to do. That helped her. It, ironically, her brother's death precipitated her recovery from anorexia. So uh, she started to rebel and just completely did a 180. She started wagging school. She missed 50 days out of 150. You know, she she just, she rebelled. And um, it was incredibly difficult. And I would worry, I would worry about her terribly. But over the following two years, she, um, you know, she recovered really well. She looked very healthy and anorexia was not a factor for her anymore because it paled in significance next to her brother's death. Nothing was as important. Nothing uh, affected her as much. So that became insignificant in the, in the sh shadow of Simon's death. Another two years on, she was doing her last year in high school. And... A few more contributing factors around this period of time. And unexpectedly, she was supposed to be sitting at exam one morning and she hadn't come home the night before. And instead of seeing Ali come home, I had the police knock on my door again to tell me that shit, they had found her and she had taken her own life. Oh, my. How do you still stand after this? I mean, the, the, I see where you got the title of the book. Three tragic deaths. Two domestic violence involved marriages. And just when you thought, even though she was rebelling, that she was healthy on the outside, the inside just wasn't fixed yet right if we ever get fixed from a suicide yeah you know, <laughs> it's i still carry the hurt of it of course i do and my my remaining child and i he's not really a child he's 31 but he lives with me <laughs> we carry an increased risk of dying by suicide ourselves for the rest of our lives it's it's a big challenge to live with a suicide much less to 
what inspired you to eventually say, I want to put the ink on the page? Uh, was it to be therapeutic for you because you do journal? Or was it to actually let people know, hey, there I is somewhat of life after the life? I wanted to give us all a voice, all four of my children and myself, I wanted to give us a voice so that we could have our say. It's a very unusual set of circumstances that we live with. It doesn't happen very much in a developed country. Um, it's And it's a shocking story for people to hear. And I wanted us to have our say about it, to, to put the truth of our lives out there. Um, in my daughter's chapter about anorexia, which is called Pursuit of Perfection. I use her journal excerpts so that she can tell her story. And I just felt as I was writing it, it was very important to me to tell the stories for all my children the way I felt they would want them to be told rather than from my angle. So that was one reason. And as I said, it was important for me to reach out to other people and to remind them that they were not alone because that's what I sought myself. And uh, I thought, you know, that was a do unto others thing. Yeah. And um, uh, it was unusual. I felt a responsibility, and I still do. I feel a responsibility to share it because it is uncommon. And if anybody benefits from anything I share, any insights, etc., I think that's what we're doing here. We're meant yeah. to help each other. Hey, well, we're going to take a, a break uh, to let everybody catch their breath a little bit. Um, and on the other side of this break, I really want to drill down in you and your experience of here you are with a degree in psychology. Was there any red flags? Was there any stopping any of this? Was there any possibilities of it? And because I, I know so many people that have endured this type of, not three, but uh, of a child that has uh, committed suicide, um, what advice do you have to offer? Uh, when we get back right after this commercial break, hang with us, 888-627-6008. You will not want to miss the second part of this story. Hang with us. We'll be right back. Wow. From HCI Publishing, that brought you the international bestsellers, A Child Called It, and the Chicken Soup for the Soul series comes the latest book by Dr. Gregory Williams, Shattered by the Darkness. This book describes the horrific abuse that Dr. Williams suffered at the hands of his father for over 12 years and the damaging effect of keeping everything silent about that abuse for 30 years. If you're looking for that book that you can't put down, then pick up a copy of Shattered by the Darkness by Dr. Gregory Williams at all Barnes & Noble stores, Amazon, and Books A Million. Now, back to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. 
Welcome back. We have our guests all the way from Australia tonight. Denny Meek, that is the author of the book Stand Still Standing. You will not want to pass on this book. You need to get on Amazon right now, and you can download it on the electronic version and read some of it tonight before you go to bed. Uh, it is very inspiring, very heart-wrenching, uh, but very therapeutic because it has so much uh, good stuff in the middle of such tragedy. Denny, please explain to me, who did you have in your life, in your world, that helped you through this type of, wow, baggage of life that was happening to you? How, how did you get through? Who was there to help you? I've always availed myself of the help of the field of psychology, of counsellors or psychologists, psychiatrists, whoever was available and best suited to whatever was happening at the time, whether it was uh, an expert in domestic violence. Um, that was one man I saw. His name was James. He was a great help to me, uh, very empowering to me as a woman. He understood the complexities of DV. And uh, with the grief, I had a support group of the Compassionate Friends to attend. I attended that for eight years. We would sit around in a circle and share our stories or whatever we were going through at the time. That was a huge help, uh, more so after I lost my eldest son. After my daughter died, I felt a little bit different at the group, but it was somewhere where I could go to be with the subject of child loss. And that was important because our society does not allow room for that or for any types of suffering really, doesn't welcome and embrace and support. So you have to find your little subgroups. Um, I find now being online, uh, reading comments that people make help address that isolation. Uh, we also had a great psychiatrist. My daughter had a very good psychiatrist, a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and when Ali died, she had six months of appointments booked up with him still. So I took those appointments and I have continued to see him ever since. He's a part of my life and uh, I, I have a consultation with him at least once a month. So he said that I've practically deconstructed my entire personality. <laughs> yeah. I hope that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Is there situations where from the parents perspective that suicide prevention is just not even possible this you didn't see this coming you couldn't have prevented this not really and it's this the shock that you get when it happens that shows you you hadn't been prepared for this. You hadn't really. You might have thrown a thought in that direction and hoped that it didn't happen, but really do you expect it? The shock is horrific and it, it's a merciful thing. It protects you, but the shock shows you you really you didn't expect it, not really. Um, I think it, it's... It's hard to say that it's preventable because, and that's not to detract from what suicide prevention organisations do, but suicides are layered. You know, they bring in backgrounds and personalities and environments and all sorts of factors 
in an individual's life and they are layered and it's hard to see how each of those layers is effect, affecting the individual. My children were different people to each other and they died for different reasons. You know, uh, I know that Ali was at risk. I know that my surviving child and I are at risk. Do you really expect it? I just think it's hard to say that you could because it's so it's so massive when it happens. <clears throat> With parents who are surviving the suicide of a child, I wouldn't give advice of any kind. I, I would just sit with them and invite them to talk. They would know that I know the inside of the experience. I think we get given a lot of unasked for advice in our society. People think that they understand, but really you've, you've got to experience it to understand. Yeah. And I would have a tremendous amount of compassion for however they were handling it. If there came a time when I could say, when they could receive any word, I might offer um, just to look after themselves as best they can, physically to going for a walk if you don't feel like, you know, going to the gym. And I need to say that the griefs are different too. Um, my grief responses were different after my daughter died than after my son died. So you it's not a style that a person has. It's the grief itself. They're all unique. And the way I needed to deal with Ellie's grief and process, it was different. I needed to get very active. Um, I had work after Simon died and I needed to come to an end with that at the end of that year and just have a break. Whereas when Ellie died, I had just started new work and I needed to keep that work going. I needed to keep busy and uh, processing it in a different way. So a person knows their own grief better than anybody else. You know, they know what's going on inside themselves. It's great to have help from an outsider because that validates it for you, and that's really important. You can you can start to build on that if you receive validation. So sometimes when we try so hard to find the right words and the right uh, tools and the right three-step plan to offer our friends that are going through you recommend leave all that behind and just be present? Uh, that's a good idea. I recommend whatever works for them because that changes too. Just, yes, being present for me, and I can only share my experience and what worked for me, journaling was a great help. I've journaled oh, over three, sure. 3 million words in my life and that was an irreplaceable coping mechanism for me. Um, it would just scrape the top off the pain. I could tell anything to my journal. I would just spill it all out onto the page and whatever I needed to say went down as honestly as I could, as deeply as I could, tuning into whatever I was really feeling and being honest, no matter how unacceptable it might have been to me, just to be really honest. And it was it was good to look back at the page and see what I've written because it would give that would externalise it and give me a little bit of objectivity about it. I found that you, really helpful. Do you journal daily, weekly? Uh, and tell me that process because I journal too. Uh, everybody has a different way of doing it. What works for you when you start bleeding on the page? How do you do that? Um, sometimes if I find that I'm carrying around something that is irritating me or hurting me, um, I will 
just open open the page and start telling the story, start explaining to myself as though I am the recipient of uh, Denny's confidence and uh, I just say whatever I need to say about it. It doesn't matter if I look at myself and think that I sound petty. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, you know, if anybody else might judge what I'm saying. It just doesn't matter. There are rules in my journal. You know, I'm allowed to be and say whatever I need to be and say. And nobody sees it. Well, I actually did include journal excerpts in Still Standing, <laughs> which is good because it gives the book a rawness and an immediacy. Yes. And, yeah, it brings the reader into the now of the experience, but it only just dips their toe in and then brings them out and keeps going with the story. And I think it it it's what gives the book its deep seam. Mm. Tell me, because it had to be something that you ask yourself, did, did faith and does faith have any uh, part of your life? Did it? Does it? Did it help you through? And how many times were you screaming at God and going, what in the world did I do to deserve this, God? Very much so. Very much so. That was the biggest secondary loss of my life, my faith. It hurt me so badly to be experiencing. I went through a deep, dark night of the soul, and I didn't want to do that, you know. That was my dad is an ordained Methodist minister, so I was brought up uh, yeah. with that skeleton of spirituality. You know, that's who I was, and it's still, it's still the core, you know. I don't have answers, and it's very hard to learn to live with unanswered questions, especially of that nature, which is where a lot of the questions end up. You can answer physical on the physical level and emotional and psychological understandings, but spiritual, especially with a life like this, it's such a big ask. People would proffer me their explanations. They would say to me, but God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. <laughs> That's not a Bible verse, I want you to know. It's not about this. Hooray, hooray. <laughs> that was not comforting. No. <laughs> or, you know, it's others, uh, like New Age ideas, we manifest our own reality 100%. And I'm thinking, nope, <laughs> it doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. And they were all, they all felt like an assault on deep suffering. They were not comforting. They were meant to be comforting, but they were that person's formula. That they were offering that to me and it didn't fit. And, you know, for me, it was very hard to abandon simple formulas that other people seem to be allowed to continue to live by. It makes me feel like I don't belong a lot of the time because when I have stories, if I'm to be all of myself in the conversation, I need to bring this with me because I'm integrating this. I'm not leaving it in the past and cutting ties and letting go. My children are part of me. You know, I have relationships with them on the inside of myself, you know. So um, I have to carve out a place for that. Does writing the book, speaking, talking, teaching, workshops, trainings, whatever, uh, the, the way you interact with the public now, telling them about your experience and how they can 
uh, pull through in their worst times. Does that bring any healing to any of the emotional pain and hurt that you've gone through uh, in your life? I want to say yes, but I I sort of feel like it's a separate journey. Yeah. You know, inner and outer feel a bit separate to me. I hope it doesn't always stay that way. It, it's another way of asking the question, is writing the book cathartic, isn't it? And mm-hmm. look, I don't, in all honesty, it's not. It's not cathartic. I think that um, uh, I set a goal for myself to write this book and achieving that goal has been very satisfying for me. I'm sharing it because I feel that's the most obvious thing to me with how I see spirituality. That's the most obvious thing to me that I must do with it. It's a responsibility. And I feel that I'm doing the most loving thing that I can do with it. To, to help people, to offer it to people, to take whatever they can get from it. Um, so between me and you right now, eyeball to eyeball, then where do you find peace? Where do you find rest? Where is your retreat for you uh, to get by, to be able to still stand? Um. I stay alive for whichever children I have left. I've done that through the losses, and I have another child here. He's not a child. He's 31, but I live for him. I could not abandon him. I have also stayed on for my parents who are elderly now. My mum's nearly 90. My dad's 94, and they've been a big part of my life. They have continued to be very supportive to me in my grief because they miss their grandchildren as well. You know, um, and I have not wanted for them to suffer a loss like that. We we did lose my sister six years ago, but I didn't want my parents to experience what I had. Um, I think of I think of all the hurt. I think of my children's friends and the hurt that they suffer from living with a suicide. And I have not wanted to do that to anybody. I'm not saying that my children did it to me, but you know. The, this life and its ripples out into the world that I have responsibility for, I want to do it in as much of a loving way, whatever I'm calling love in the day, as I can. It's a, I don't know where that drive to do good comes from. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's an inner drive. It's an inner drive. It just makes sense to me spiritually. So even though you have gone through this dark, dark, dark tunnel, do you find days that you re-enter that emotionally? That he's like, wait, I'm still enduring this. This isn't all over for me. I'm still battling with this. I want to say that it changes very much. Our grief keeps changing just like we do. It changes and it is possible to turn corners and I have. It's nowhere near what it used to be in the valley. And if I do have the occasional day um, that's difficult and painful, I bounce a lot quicker afterwards. I bounce back 
because there's been so much time that I've built a type of tenacity or resilience since, you know, the deep grief. I know I, I just kind of lean into that and it's there waiting for me so I can bounce after an episode of sadness. It's yeah. not it's nowhere near as deep as it was initially in those first few years afterwards. Um you never become a former bereaved parent. You know, when you lose your parents, you can be an orphan. When you lose your spouse, you can be widowed. You never become a former bereaved parent. And I know that I speak on behalf of lots of bereaved parents when I say you carry the hurt. You know, when my baby son died, there was no room in our society for that. And the death of a baby is a very disenfranchised loss. So very soon I saw that I just... The safest place for that grief was inside myself and I had to pull it in and not share it with people. So what's interesting now is that I've been able to compare in myself how it feels to lose a baby and how it feels to lose a grown child. At my son's funeral, my eldest son's funeral, I said I said that it's much better to have 18 years, to have had 18 years than to have had two months. So... Where I'm going now, Greg, is targeting the stigmas of suffering and wanting to invite conversations like this, and I thank you so much for this time, where people talk about the things that make them uncomfortable so that we can make room for them in the world. That's, that's powerful. Um, did you have a copy of your book right there in front of you? Okay. There's Is that a dragonfly on yes. the hand of the, the child? Is yes. there a significance of the dragonfly? And if there is, what would yes. that significance be? At, at my son, my eldest son's funeral, graveside after the service, I read a story. Um, my youngest child was 10 at the time. So I read a children's story about a little colony of water bugs who kept, uh, you know, ascending a stalk, a lily stalk and then disappearing, and they didn't know where the water bug went. So they agreed that the next one to ascend the lily stalk would come back and tell them what happened, what they did. So the next one who suggested that was the one who uh, climbed the lily stalk, and he woke up a little while later on this lily pad, and he had a different body. He tried to move, and he discovered he had four silver wings and a long tail, and when he tried to move, he discovered he'd become a dragonfly. So he buzzed around happily in the sunshine and this new world really enjoying this experience. And then he suddenly saw the uh, water bugs below the surface. So he darted down, and darted and darted and darted and couldn't get below the surface. And he thought, I can't keep my promise to go back and tell them what happens. I'll just have to wait until they become dragonflies too and then they'll know. And so that was the story that I read. And when I finished reading that, we stepped back from the gazebo and released helium balloons. We were allowed to do that back then. <laughs> and in between my helium balloon and me flew a dragonfly. So hence, I'm the dragonfly lady. <laughs> there you go. It's wow. lovely. Synchronicities like that happen. It's beautiful. I, I'm looking at. Uh, I've been my my phone's going uh, bonkers here. Um, we only have a minute or two before we have to go. One oh. question that I did see was, 
uh, what recommendation do you have for a parent that is going through uh, a child that is having an experience in an eating disorder? Yeah. And we only have a few seconds, but what, what would your advice be for that? Get help. Early intervention renders better results and get somebody who really knows the illness. Get help. Dietitian, preferably GP, which you call a physician, and a psychologist who is really informed about the illness and stick to those appointments. An early intervention renders better results. Mm. Fantastic. Any last word? I want to make sure if, if somebody wants to get a copy of this book, is Amazon the best way to do that? Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Dimex, Booktopia, or my website, www.dennymeek.com. Uh, yeah, that's it, .com. Um, that's D-E-N-N-Y-M-E-E-K. Or all the good bookstores. Okay, great. I recommend it highly to anybody. Last thoughts. How would, what's the last thing you'd like to let our listeners know about? How do you sum it up? <laughs> um, there's hope. There's hope. Oh. There's hope. That's what I want to give in whatever form is helpful to you. Denny, I, I applaud you. Your authenticity, your transparency, you have championed through this. Um, like no one I've ever seen. I have people on every week that just has stories, but nothing has ever been uh, like this one. And I appreciate you taking the time all the way on the other side of the world to to share with our listeners your story. Thank you for being Thank with you. us tonight. Thanks for having me, Greg. Thank you I so much. You because there's a lot of stuff about grief that I think you have wisdom on that the textbooks haven't tapped into yet. And I'd love to have you come on and we can just talk more about general grief and yes. how you can help people out. Uh, I'd love you, to. Okay, I'd, I'd love, love to have you back on. We'll make Thank that you. connection. Thank you. Thank you, Denny. God bless. <laughs> you too. Uh, like we do each and every week. Wow. I, I can't even fathom. I don't think anybody can fathom. Uh, we're getting texts and, and uh, emails uh, from people saying, wow, this is one of the best guests we've ever had uh, that shared the story. I tell you, uh, no matter what has happened, Denny's last words put it in perspective. Anything you want to share, there's hope. Wow. No matter what you've gone through, no matter what you're going to go through, no matter what you're enduring, no matter what your past has been, no matter what you're going to face tomorrow, there's hope. Never give up on hope because I promise you that you'll still be standing on the other side of this if you hang on to hope. Thank you for joining us tonight. Join us next week for another unbelievable program. You will not want to miss next week here right uh, here on the program, 8 p.m. Central Time live from Houston, breaking the silence. God bless you have time right now to get on Amazon and buy this book. You will not regret it. Thank you, Denny. Appreciate you being here. Thank you for sharing. God bless. We'll see you all next week. Hang in there. Good night.
Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832-396-6525 or email him at shatteredbythedarkness at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station 1 for the next episode of Breaking the Silence.